Good afternoon, everyone. Librarian Danielle Bilanger here from the Cote Saint Louis Public Library joining you virtually. Today, we have another great program for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a conversation with the international best-selling author, Monica Ali. Thank you very much, Monica, for taking the time to speak with me today all the way from London and to Maeve at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. Thank you also to Andreas at Paragraph Bookstore for collaborating with us on this event. To begin with, I will share a condensed bio. Monica Ali was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh and grew up in England. She was named one of the 20 best young British novelists under 40 by Granta. She is the author of four previous novels, including Untold Story and Brick Lane, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and the Guardian Book Prize nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and was named a winner of the 2003 Discover Award for Fiction and a New York Times Editor's Choice book that same year. She lives in London with her husband and two children. Welcome, Monica, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Before we even discuss your latest novel, Love Marriage, let's speak a little bit about your prior work experience in the marketing department of a small publishing house as a sales and marketing manager and your work at a branding agency. Did these experiences help you discover your interest in writing? <laughs> um, well, I do. I'm not sure that they did, really. I mean, my um, desire to write uh, was fueled by being a big reader, which started very, very early on in life. So uh, I didn't grow up in a house with loads of books because I grew up poor, but I had a library card and um, that kind of saved me. So I was one of those kids that always had my head in a book. I'd even walk along sometimes reading a book. Um, I quickly graduated to the adult section of the library and I was a voracious, if somewhat random reader. So I think that really, um, those experiences of totally being able to disappear into another world, into another life, was what fueled my desire um, to become a writer. Um, I mean, now I can't have quite the same experience with reading because I'm always reading with my analytical brain on as well. So I'm wondering, you know, how was this effect achieved or thinking about the structure of the novel. But as a writer, I find that I can have that experience in some way again because I can lose myself in the writing in the way that I used to lose myself in the reading and I think that's really why I write. Thank you. I read that you were originally interested in short fiction but felt constrained by the format. What motivated you to attempt writing a first novel? Yeah, I did start off writing short stories. I started um, writing those when I had my first child, who's now grown up. Um, he's 23 now. But when he was a baby, he 
I was about to say he was a bad sleeper, but I'm not sure that's true. He slept like, you know, babies sleep, which is they wake up a lot, uh, <laughs> which is fine, except I couldn't get back to sleep quite often. And, uh, you know, when I find myself getting frustrated about starting to become an insomniac, I decided that I'd try and do something constructive with time instead of getting stressed about it. And that's when I write, started writing short stories. Um, then I didn't start writing a novel. I didn't start attempt, attempting to write a novel until I'd had my second child. Um, she's two years younger. And I was still nursing her and I had my son who was a toddler. Um, I had very little in the way of childcare. But what happened was that um, my grandfather died, my mother's father, and we went to the funeral. And the very next day, I sat down and started to write what eventually turned into Brick Lane. And I think there is something quite galvanizing about a funeral. I mean, you only get so many days, weeks, months, years on this earth. And if you never try, you'll never, you'll never know. And so my husband very kindly took the kids for a couple of hours. And I just started writing what you know that this, this idea that had been brewing a little bit in the back of my mind but I didn't feel that it was feasible to attempt to write a novel in the circumstances with young you know very young children and and no childcare but then you know actually it was um once once I got into it I was so compelled to do it that I you know I, I couldn't stop and how long did you spend writing Brickley? Um, it took about two and a half years from, yeah, from the day that I sat down to, to start. Um, yeah, two and a half years, I think. And can you tell us about the enormous success of Brick Lane and how that changed your life? Yeah, um... I mean, the, I mean, the main thing that it changed was that uh, um, it gave me the space because it gave me the the money and therefore the time to, um, you know, not, not to have to think about going back to, to work or doing the freelance work that I was doing. Before that, I was a freelance copywriter. Um, so that's the way that it that it radically changed my life I would say um and it, and it was published in you know loads of different languages and I spent a lot of um time going to support those different publications so a lot of publicity and so on so I got to travel to lots of amazing places but that was I mean that was quite hard because you know, much as I wanted to support the publications, it was hard being away from home um, and leaving the children. So it was quite, it was quite overwhelming in a way. But at the time, I mean, looking back on it, I think, you know, I did struggle quite a lot, but at the time I didn't feel that 
I could admit to that or complain about it because you know when everything is going well you're not supposed to complain about things right so yes. I think, um, you know it's, it's in retrospect I can look back and say yeah that, that was quite hard in some ways and Rick Lane was turned into a film and can you tell us a little bit about that and were you involved in that process so the, um, they asked me um, right at the beginning if I was interested in writing the script and I wasn't. Um, you know, that's a whole different thing and I, didn't, I hadn't learned how to, to do that. So um, they, the production company would then send me the first draft, the second draft, the many, many drafts of the script, but they just stacked up in the corner of my <laughs> office on the floor and I never read any of them because... I knew that if I did, I would want to interfere and I'd want to have loads of comments, but it's a different, um, it's a different animal, you know, it's a, it's a different thing um, adapting the movie, new, adapting the, the, the book into a movie and you can't put everything that's in the book into the film. And my view was that either you get fully involved, which I didn't want to do, or you kind of draw a line in the sand and, you know, hand over the book and that's that. So the first time um, I knew what was in those um, draft scripts was when I actually saw the, the first, you know, the rough cut of the film. And actually I thought I thought that Abby Morgan, who was a screenwriter, and Sarah Gavron, who directed it, had done a really great job. I mean, there are some things that I think, well, I wouldn't have done that or I wouldn't have missed that. that but, you know, the performances were, were great. And overall, I was really, really pleased, which was a pleasant surprise. I think I'd prepared myself for the worst. <laughs> <laughs> After Brick Lane, you wrote three, three more novels before writing Love Marriage. Uh, the 10-year gap between novels before Love Marriage comes up quite often when reading <laughs> reviews about Love Marriage. Why such a long pause? Uh, I just had a loss of confidence. And um, I think it's really good and even necessary as a writer to have some self-doubt because it makes you test every sentence and every word and make sure that they're that every page is as good as you can make it but you also have to have a level of self-belief otherwise you will never get anything onto the page you'll certainly never finish uh, a whole novel so um yeah, a total loss of confidence is just really catastrophic. So I stopped writing. Um, but what uh, helped get me out of it, strangely enough, was I did start thinking about writing for the screen, for the small screen, in fact, for television drama. Um, basically because I was watching a lot of telly. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I can do that. And um, I've read huge numbers of TV scripts and um, sort of taught myself, you know, how to do that. And then I worked with a number of different 
production companies, got scripts commissioned. Uh, nothing ever ended up on the screen, but I very much enjoyed the process. I enjoyed learning a new craft, a new discipline. I enjoyed working in a much more collaborative way because, as you know, novel writing is a very solitary occupation. Um, and most of all, it just reminded me that I need to be writing and it kind of gave me back that joy of writing. So I started writing prose again and um, Love Marriage took me for about four or so years to write. So, um, so yeah, so I did have a, you know, a period of not writing and then I had the period of uh, of trying to write for TV and then I started on the research process and the writing for Love Marriage and now the TV rights were auctioned for Love Marriage and there was so much interest it was it was a real buzz you know it was very exciting and I went with a company called New Pictures who are just fantastic and it is in development with the BBC and I'm writing the script. So I now look back on that um, earlier script writing experience as sort of my apprenticeship. Um, so it didn't go to waste. That's wonderful. It's, it's sort of like you've come full circle. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. So a big thank you again to Nave at Simon & Schuster for sending me an advanced reader's copy of the book, Love Marriage, which I'm sure many of you listening in We'll put your names down for at the library. I will share a synopsis of the plot for those listening in today. Yasmin Gorami is 26 in training to be a doctor like her Indian-born father and engaged to the charismatic upper-class Joe Sangster, whose formidable mother, Harriet, is a famous feminist. The gulf between families is vast. So too is the gulf in sexual experience between Yasmin and Joe. As the wedding draws near, misunderstandings, infidelities, and long-held secrets upend both Yasmin's relationship and that of her parents, a love marriage according to the family lore that Yasmin has believed all her life. A glorious acute observer of class, sexual mores, and the mysteries of the human heart, Monica Ali has written a captivating social comedy and a profoundly moving revelatory story, revelatory, sorry, story of two cultures, two families, and two people trying to understand one another. Congratulations, Monica, on a very charming, poignant, and thought-provoking novel. I commend you on your ability to integrate humor and tact, um, tackling such taboo topics as race, gender, class, and sex, all within one novel. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about why you chose Love Marriage as both the title and one of the topics of the novel? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there's some ambiguity in the way that people read the title, which I kind of enjoy. I like that. Um, I did an interview, well, I've done a few interviews with um, Indian publications recently because the book is out and available in India as well. And of course, everybody in the subcontinent reads the title as Love Marriage, 
um, is not the normal way of getting married, uh, which is an arranged marriage. So people in the subcontinent don't talk about an arranged marriage. That is just marriage. Okay, and the other thing is called a love marriage. And people in the West don't talk about a, a love marriage. That's just marriage. But we talk about an arranged marriage. Okay, so I knew that I was very aware that people were going to read the title in different ways, depending on where their situation, what, what their background is. Um, and... And in the West, you know, people have asked me, oh, is it, is it love and marriage? Or is it a, a kind of command, you know, you should love marriage or love must come before marriage. So, but that, that, that's all, you know, fine with me because there is an ambiguity. Formally or um, say literally, the title refers to the marriage between Yasmin, Yasmin's parents, um, Shokat and Anissa. So the founding story of their family, the family myth, if you, if you like, and I think all families more or less have a sort of originating story or, a, you know, a, a, um, it's a story that becomes a kind of sort of law, as in folklore. And this is the one in the Garami fa family, because her, Yasmin's mother came from a, a well-off, um, very middle-class Indian background, Calcutta. And her father was a very poor, poor boy. He grew up, you know, more or less on the street. And yet... They so they would never have had, you know, their families would never have arranged a marriage. Um, but against the odds and against everything, all expectations, they made this love match. So, and that is um both a source of inspiration for Yasmin sometimes, like love can conquer, or when she finds out that her wonderful perfect fiance joe has cheated on her she sometimes sort of draws on this as a source of strength or you know love can conquer everything all the complications all the the hurdles that you have to overcome including things like infidelity um and then sometimes it's really kind of a difficult thing to live up to you know um so it can be both a kind of curse and a blessing for yasmin can you tell us a little bit about your parents' marriage? Oh, well, they, they, they did have a love <laughs> <laughs> Um, So my, um, my mother is English, you know, white English. Um, my father is Bengali, uh, was born in what was then India, uh, later became East Pakistan, is now Bangladesh. Um, he met my mother when he was a student in the UK. He already had a, a, a marriage that had been arranged for him by his father. He was betrothed. Um, he'd said, well, I will marry this girl, but after I finish my studies. But then he met my mother. And um, yeah, so that, uh, and then she went to Dhaka to marry him 
uh, and that was a big scandal. And yeah, my uh, grandfather disowned my father, and difficulties on this side as well. So that, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the story of <laughs> this particular love marriage. Going back to the novel, I enjoyed the many scenes in which Yasmin and her father played, played guessing games about uh, medical diagnoses, um, sort of listing out uh, what what the the case challenges. Yeah. Yes, the case challenges. Um, so, how did you go about researching this aspect of the novel? Yeah, I mean the, the bit because um, Yasmin is a young doctor. Um, her fiance is a doctor, uh, work, work in the same hospital. He's in Obzangaini. Do you call it Obzangaini in Canada? Um, Obstetrics and gynecology. Yes. yes. Just out. <laughs> <laughs> um, Yasmin works in geriatric ward. Um, her, her father is a GP, so a general practitioner. So there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of the action is set in the hospitals as well. So I did need to get those things right. And the, as you say, the case challenges uh, kind of crucial as well as being, I hope, fun. They're also crucial to the story in some ways. So I did need to get those right. And I did a lot of research um, read numerous books, journals, articles. I've got doctor friends as well. Everyone here has their own experience of the National Health Service or friends or relatives who, you know. So there was all, all of that. I mean, I still get emails from the subscription department of the New England Journal of Medicine saying, <laughs> come back and subscribe again. So I know I've done enough of that now. But yeah, the New England Journal of Medicine is, is famous for these case challenges. So I did get permission um, to use some of those. Yeah. Perfect. Another portion of the novel, which I found to be quite endearing, is Yasmin's relationship with the patients in the geriatric ward. It's obvious she cares for them, especially Mrs. Antonova. Did you write this after spending some time yourself in geriatric wards or doing some research about them? Yeah, I did. I mean, again, I did lots and lots of research. Um, I had friends who were able to fact check, which is always very helpful. Um, my grandmother, before she passed away, she was in a, a home and a, in and out of hospital and I spent some time and visited and so on. So, yeah, it's a bit, it's a combination of those things. And, you know, for me, the interesting part about Yasmin's relationship with Mrs. Antonova, who is 96 years old, who's had five marriages of her own, who is um, sort of stuck between she can't go home because there's nobody at home to take care of her and yet she shouldn't really be in the hospital but there's nowhere else for her to go so she's kind of stuck so they have this longer relationship and the care that Yasmin gives her is really not so much in the her medical knowledge it's in being a human being and holding her hand when that's appropriate um 
letting Mrs. Anthony overcome for her, that is appropriate. And just having that real human connection and lending an ear and treating Mrs. Antonova as um, somebody who has a lot to give and a lot to offer, as well as just being, you know, uh, rather than just being a, an elderly person who um, is at the end of her life and therefore has nothing to contribute. You know, she sees the whole person. Let's speak of the characters within the novel for a few moments. Harriet and Ma were two of my favorite characters in the book. How did you go about writing each of their stories? <laughs> yeah, so um, Harriet is Joe's mother and she is, um, I mean, what we would call a, a North London liberal lovey. I mean, she is, <laughs> Uh, a famous writer, feminist, academic, um, commentator. Um, Joe is her only son. They have a very close relationship, as we probably will get on to <laughs> at some point. Um, she's best known for a memoir about all her lovers, all the men and women. Uh, this is a source of um, some apprehension for Yasmin because at the beginning of the book, uh, the two families are about to meet for the first time. And I think any prospective bride-to-be is a little anxious in those circumstances. But to compound that for Yasmin, she comes from quite a conservative family background. Um, her mother is a devout Muslim. Her father, not so much, actually, he's not religious at all, but he's fairly conservative, nevertheless, in his views. Um, and there's a class difference. The Garamis are middle class. Uh, you know, her father is a doctor and her mother is a, a housewife. They live in a nice neighbourhood. But Harriet is properly posh. You know, she's a different class and she's she's properly posh and she's properly wealthy. She lives in Primrose Hill, which is a very, I think you might say upscale or upmarket yes. up <laughs> area of London. It's posh. Um, so there's that class anxiety. And... Yasmin's little brother, Arif, who is kind of the black sheep of the family, is winding her up about all of this. And he has unearthed this photograph of this infamous photo of Harriet, who, um, which is an explicit photograph of her, her, um, her private parts and she's looking straight into into the lens and Harry and Yasmin is arguing quite rightly that this was taken decades ago it's a feminist photo you take it out of context but nevertheless it's winding her up greatly because um, god what on earth will happen and Ma having been invited to dinner at Harriet's is has spent all day cooking and she's got tiffin tins and Tupperware boxes of curries and samosas and pakoras and all of this stuff because she's but that's her idea of being a good guest she's going to take all this food but again Yasmin is embarrassed and 
she feels guilty about being embarrassed, but she's kind of dreading this meeting. But actually what happens is not a clash of cultures, which I've seen sometimes the book described as. That doesn't happen. That um, <laughs> There's an anxiety there. But what happens is that Harriet embraces the Garamis, Ma in particular, and much too much for Yasmin's liking. And, and Harriet and Ma become friends. There were also some very interesting secondary characters like Rania, Pepperdine, Flame, and even Niam. How mm -hmm. did you come up with these and which did you find most fascinating? Well, um, ooh, which I find most fascinating. I'll tell you what, what who was the most fun to write was Pepperdine. So Pepperdine is a colleague of Yasmin's. He's actually um, her boss and her supervisor. He is a consultant in the care of the elderly department at St Barnabas Hospital where they, they both work and Joe works as well. And um, I don't think it's spoiling anything for people who haven't read the book to, to say that um, Joe's wonderful, Joe is wonderful, you know, this fiance, he's, he's handsome, he's charming, he's rich. Um, he's also kind and sensitive and caring, but he does cheat on Yasmin. Um, and Yasmin then shocks herself even more by having revenge sex um, with this colleague, Pepperdine. Um, because yeah, I mean, Yasmin has always thought of herself as, I mean, she's a follower of the rules. She's a good girl. She's a good person. She's, you know, deeply moral. And yet now she's, she's nursing this enormous secret. Um, little does she know that Joe's got an even bigger secret, but you know, we perhaps get onto that later or not. But Pepperdine was enormous fun to write because um, in a way he shows Yasmin who she really is. I mean, or forces Yasmin to confront who she is, who she could be, who she wants to be, how she wants to operate in this world and how much she's been hiding her own desires, even from herself. And he's sort of the catalyst for a lot of that. And uh, my publishers um, in the UK, Virago, I mean, there's a Pepperdine fan club there. They, they've all got the hots for him. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think a lot of readers have felt the same way about <laughs> Pepperdine. <laughs> and I've got a soft spot for him myself, I have to say. I, I like, I enjoy the way that Yasmin is very hot and cold with him but I feel like it's because she's not comfortable with herself and that's why she's not always, she's not always very nice to him, even when he's always being very kind to her. Yes, she's sort of flinging around a lot of accusations towards him, but he quite calm. I think that's what infuriates her about him is that he does retain his calm and that, 
Um, he can point out her flaws in a very calm manner. Um, I think at one point he even tells her that she, she's mean or she's capable, she's got a mean streak. And she's shocked. She's like, me? <laughs> Can't possibly be. And then, she, you know, she, she ponders on that. Um, yeah, so I think that's why I enjoyed writing Pepperdine because, I mean, Yasmin, well, I mean, you know, she's very dear to my heart and she is the protagonist. I've had to pick one central character. Most of the book is from her perspective. Um, but, yeah, she gets a lot of things wrong. You know, she's, um, she's got a lot to learn. And in this novel, the bond between Yasmin and her brother is strong, despite their differences in opinions at times, several times throughout the novel. Do you think this helped Arif grow up, if you will, over the course of the novel? The bond between brother and sister? Yes. Yeah. Uh, interesting question. Yeah. Um, yes, probably. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? I think that it helped him because he doesn't have the best relationship with his father. And yes, his mother always looks out for him. But even when Yasmin doesn't agree, I think he knows she cares. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, they, you know, they have quite a complicated relationship, don't they? And, and Yasmin is often frustrated, if not outright angry <laughs> with him um, for messing about, um, for not fulfilling his duties in a way. And the more that he doesn't live up to the kind of son he's supposed to be, the more that she feels that she's got to fill that role. Um, so she's the good and dutiful daughter and he's the rebel. I think that, you know, there's resentment there that's built up over the years. But sometimes she kind of envies him, his freedom and his um, uh, ability to make his own decisions, right or wrong, reckless or, you know, considered. And his relationship with Lucy, his girlfriend, and Lucy's family is sometimes verges on kind of envious. So when Shokat, when um, the father realizes that, um, well, discovers by accident that Lucy is pregnant and he meets her you know he's angry he's angry he thinks Arif is throwing his life away that this girl is not good enough you know she's a receptionist in a in a dental surgery and now they're, they're going to have a baby and he's ruined his life he doesn't have a job how's he going to look after this child and and almost in a way you know, Yasmin feels that he looks down on uh, down on Lucy's family as not being um, well. I work, you know, they're working class or an ordinary family. Um, but there's a sort of level of transparency in that family. It doesn't mean that they don't have their difficulties. They do have their difficulties, but 
um, they don't have the twisted, knotted, um, lie, secret, guilt, shame that the Garamis and the Sangsters have. You know, what you see is what you get with that family. Whereas there's a kind of gap between surface and reality in both the Sangster household and in the Garami household. And I think Yasmin comes to appreciate some of the, the value of the way that Lucy's family conduct themselves. So this novel is a family saga that explores two families on a journey towards coming together to celebrate a wedding, while at the same time behind the scenes dealing with their own secrets, judgments, and misconceptions. Both the Gorami and Sangster families have complex inner workings. What drew you to merge the two family stories together? Well, actually, it started off life as I was working on two different stories. I mean, one was about Yasmin. She was a junior doctor um, and it was about her love life. And one was about Harriet, who was not called Harriet at that point. She was called Elizabeth, but that was, I didn't feel like the right name. Um, uh, who was this famous feminist and writer and she had that memoir that I mentioned about her very colourful love life but I wasn't sure that I was going to write either as a novel and then I had a, a light bulb moment one of the rare <laughs> genuine sort of moments of inspiration because writing is 99% perspiration and, you know, um, uh, but this was a, a, a pure light bulb moment when I thought, what if I brought them together? And as soon as I thought of that, I thought, uh, this is going to be a lot of fun to write. And I knew it was a novel that I had to write. And because, I mean, how do you bring these two different, um, two very different characters together well I was dealing with love and sex with both of them yeah. that is something of you know but I mean I, you could say that sex is universal almost um so that was a that was a to end up as the narrative backbone of the book I would say is sex um and within a London setting where it's a very multicultural city you can actually get them together quite easily. Um, so yeah, as soon, as soon as I thought of putting them together, that, then it just took off, you know, then I wrote and wrote and wrote. Uh, why choose Yasmin and Joe to be married with such vast differences when it comes to both attitudes um, and experience with sex? Yeah, so, I mean, as I just said, I th the, the narrative backbone or the story engine of the whole book is sex. I mean, it is about, I mean, there's plenty about love and marriage, but the, the major turning points of the story all hinge on sex in one way or another. And that could be infidelity or revenge sex or sexual addiction, 
issues around sexual violence or sexual identity. Um, it's what moves the story along, by and large. It's also how the protagonists grapple with their own identities or mature into them. Um, it's more often than not, it is what um, sparks the drama or the conflict within families or between different characters. So you could say that sex is, it's every character's weakness and it's every character's strength. So in exploring um, all of that, I have to also add that sex, that, I mean, there's very little actual sex in the book. I think there's two sex scenes, you know, it's not Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> There's, there's two, you know, short but crucial, I think, rather than gratuitous sex scenes in the book. Um, and I was dreading writing them. You know, I was sweating and nervous and anxious because um, I knew that I couldn't bottle out of it. I couldn't chicken out of doing it because it's, it's so crucial to Yasmin's development as a character, you know, as a person, as a woman, that I had to do it. And then when it came down to it, um, it was actually fine. I think because it is so integral and necessary, and there's a period sex scene, which, um, you know, I, I think um, it's pivotal. It's a pivotal scene for Yasmin because it carries a lot of weight, you know, because of her background. Um, it's not just about, oh, is this a bit messy? It, it's a serious interrogation of how am I going to live my life? You know, by whose expectations, by what set of values and what store do I place on my judgment and my desire and other people's desires for me? Harriet and Anissa have their own ideas when it comes to planning Yasmin and Joe's wedding, as is often the case when wedding plans are on the horizon. Did you have your own experiences related to this that you drew from? <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> not, not at all. Not at all. Um, but, yeah, Harriet, um, I mean, at the beginning of the book, Yasmin when she's very tense about the two families coming together, um, she reassures herself that, you know, nothing terrible would happen. And even if they don't get along, you know, Harriet is not gonna put any um, spanner in the works because the English middle classes do not meddle in their children's matrimonial affairs. You know, that's what she thinks. Indian mother-in-laws might do that, do do that. But, you know, Harriet won't. And of course, Harriet proves her <laughs> completely wrong by sort of taking over the wedding planning in, in totally unexpected ways. I mean, it really derails everything that they've got planned. Um, so, I mean, you know, that that was... <laughs> that was enjoyable to write you know because I'm you know I think a lot of this book alongside 
issues about sex, there are there's a constant questioning of assumptions. So, you know, we might assume that this would be the situation going in with Harriet. In fact, that's not how it turns out. Um, Yasmin makes a lot of assumptions of her own. I mean, she resents it quite rightly when people make assumptions about her based on her ethnicity or her gender or whatever. But Yasmin makes assumptions left, right and centre about other people, including about her mother, who she doesn't really see as an individual. She's just Ma in the kitchen cooking. And I think, you know, even as an adult, we tend to do that with our parents. You know, we, we see them, it's difficult not to, to, to see them as just our parents rather than um, individuals. And it's really through Harriet's relationship with Ma um, that Yasmin comes to see her mother as the truly remarkable individual that she is rather than just, you know, eccentric, slightly eccentric, uh, Anissa in the kitchen with her pots and pans and her balls of, you know, knitting wool. And her crazy clothing. And her crazy clothing. The therapy sessions Joe attends give us the perspective of his therapist, Sandor. What made you decide to use this approach instead of offering Joe's perspective when he is attending these therapy sessions? Yeah, um, I mean, the Joe jo is a really obviously big part of the book. I mean, you know, his, his character is very crucial. Um, and so we needed to be close to him, but there was a there was a sort of structural issue that I wrestled with long and hard at the beginning, um, because he he's a sex addict. Um, he hasn't been cheating on Yasmin left, right, and centre. They've been together six months, and then he has this slip up, you know, this mistake. Um, so. That sends him into therapy to for his addiction, which he thinks that, you know, he sort of thought that he had conquered. Um, and Yasmin doesn't know about the addiction. So if we had Joe right from the beginning in his perspective, in his eyes, uh, we would have to know about his sex addiction. Otherwise, he would be withholding and we would never trust him as a narrator and that would be a different kind of relationship with him he'd become a an unreliable narrator and we'd be distanced from him and besides that I think with sex addiction and this gets discussed within the therapy scenes as well there can be a tendency to view it as it's not a real thing it's just a selfish person doing their selfish thing. It's an excuse. Um, 
you know, there's or, or, and there shouldn't really be any excuse for that kind of lack of self-control. Um, or it can be seen as a comic thing, you know, and the, the suffering of the, the, the addict it is not heeded whatsoever. I mean, you know, how could they be? It's just an object of fun. So I was very mindful of all of that. And the way for me to deal with both of those issues of getting close to him without knowing everything from the start mm. and allowing the reader to um, experience Joe's addiction as an addiction rather than as a, a sort of thing to poke fun at mm. was to set it in the, the therapy rooms with Sandor and to, to be inside Sandor's head rather than in Joe's head. So before turning it over to the audience for questions, um, I will invite now anyone who has a question to please put it in the Q&A or the chat and we will ask Monica your question. Um, so you told us a little bit about this earlier that love marriage is being adapted to the small screen for television by new pictures and that you yourself are involved in the screenplay. Um, which is wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So have you already begun um, the writing, the screenplay? I have. I have begun. And, you know, the main sort of um, challenges for translating it into a screenplay, they're largely structural. So, you know, things that happen later in the book might need to be brought forward in a screenplay things that happen um backstory sort of off screen you, you know you need to actually put them into a scene to, to see them um but really it, it you know it translates pretty well I think because so much of it is already in scenes um, and maybe that's showing a bit of influence, not consciously, but subconsciously from my flirtation with writing for TV drama. Um, but I'm just basically enjoying spending more time with Yasmin and Joe and Pepperdine <laughs> and Mar. And, you know, um, yeah, I'm really loving it. It just sounds like a lot of fun. And sometimes our audience is shy, so I'm not seeing any questions just yet. Um, so I will ask on their behalf, because we always have a question of this sort, uh, what advice would you give to prospective writers listening in today? Uh, I mean, my, my advice is always read, read, read. I mean, those are the top three things. <laughs> they can do. Uh, I mean, a lot of people go on writing courses and that is all well and good. Um, you know, I've taught on them myself, but you don't need to spend all that money on an MFA. And I've taught on MFAs as well. There's not, I don't have anything against them. Um, but if you have a library card, um, and a desire to write, you have all the resources that you need. Um, so a deep engagement with um, the reading will, that, that is sufficient. And to be curious, you know, to be curious about 
the world. I mean, to me, novel writing isn't just about navel gazing and looking inwards. It's also about um, your engagement with the world and being deeply curious about it. So we did have a question pop up. Um, do you have any recommended uh, reader likes? Uh, a read, a what I like? A read I like. What does that mean? Uh, for anyone who will enjoy this book, do you have any other books to recommend? Or you could just uh, tell us what you're reading now, which you think we should be reading as well. Oh, okay. So I read um, the love songs of W.E.B. Du Bois recently, which I thought was fantastic. Um, I'm, I can't remember that somebody Fanon Jeffers, I think, was the the name of the author. She's a poet. It's her first novel. It's um, it's a it's a big book. Um, set over a sprawling time period that deals with issues of slavery in, in, um, in America and then comes up to the present day as well. Thought that was fantastic. Um, At Night All Blood is Black by David Diop, which won the International Booker Prize, uh, I think last year, but um, Senegalese soldiers in the trenches in World War One. It's quite a dark book, but it's utterly enthralling. It's a very short read. Um, what else? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm constant. I've constantly got so many books on the go. Um, Natalia Ginsburg's book of essays, "The Little Virtues," I thought was absolutely life-changing, just a beautiful book. Um, yeah, I mean, I could I could go on, but three three is probably enough. <laughs> yes, that's enough. <laughs> Thank you so much, Monica. That's all the time we have uh, with you today. As uh, we know, you have another engagement coming up. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. And I encourage everyone to uh, read Love Marriage. You won't regret it. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, Monica. You. Thank, Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me. Bye. Yeah, Bye. Bye.